0: Hey guys, welcome to In the Trenches, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to entrepreneurs and CEOs running small to medium-sized businesses. Though most of our episodes will feature me interviewing somebody who I think has the ability to improve some aspect of your personal or professional life, I've also decided to make my blogs available to you in audio form, which is what you're listening to right now. I've crudely called these episodes audio blogs, and I'm presenting them to you in case you prefer this format over the written one. If you'd like to access the written form of these blogs, you can do so at inthetrenches.net forward slash blog. Once you're there, feel free to subscribe so that you can receive blog posts in both written and audio form as they're published. In any case, regardless of how you consume the blog material, I sincerely hope that something contained within is genuinely helpful to you on your own leadership journey. When contemplating the acquisition of a software company, or any company for that matter, The number of variables that potential purchasers must consider is overwhelming, and as a result it would be impractical to discuss all such variables in a single audio blog of reasonable length. For that reason, what follows is by no means an exhaustive list, but is instead a curated list of certain non-obvious considerations, or at least I hope they're non-obvious considerations, for the prospective software acquirer to consider based on my own experience acquiring, running, and selling a small to medium-sized software company. Specifically, for every topic that I'm about to discuss, I talk about why it's important to dig one level deeper than the simple headline numbers or conclusions. Though the number of variables that you will consider will far exceed those which I'm about to present, I hope that something contained within will prove to be helpful for you as you navigate your own due diligence process. In this audio blog, I will discuss only financial considerations, while in my next one I will discuss non-financial considerations. Topic one, digging one level deeper, the accounting treatment of software development costs. The costs that are incurred in the process of a company actually developing their software can have a different accounting treatment depending on the unique circumstances in question. Certain development costs, things like salaries for those doing the coding and testing, external vendor costs, and so on, can either be a expensed, which means costs are expensed to the income statement in the period in which they are incurred, which would decrease near-term profitability, all else being equal, or b capitalized, which is when there is an asset created on the company's balance sheet, which is then expensed to the income statement over time, increasing near-term profitability, all else being equal. Although the specific details around what costs can be expensed versus capitalized are beyond the scope of this audio blog, prospective acquirers must recognize that two identical software companies producing two identical products can theoretically present two vastly different EBITDA profiles based solely on how they choose to account for certain software development costs. This risk becomes particularly pronounced when the financial statements are unaudited, which is pretty common among SMBs, as the accounting treatment decision was likely made without external guidance from a qualified CPA. This difference, in turn, could impact the purchase price that an unsophisticated acquirer is willing to pay, particularly if the price is being computed as a multiple of the company's EBITDA. Sophisticated acquirers will recognize that differences in the accounting treatment of software development costs are largely cosmetic in nature and will leverage their financial advisors to retroactively expense any costs that might have been previously capitalized to get a true picture of the company's operating profitability and to more accurately compare the financial profile of the target company to those of its peers. Topic two, digging one level deeper, professional services revenue. Almost all software acquirers rightly value product revenue, which is typically expressed in the form of Annual Recurring Revenue, or ARR, at much higher multiples than they do service revenue, generally per-hour revenue generated in the setup, implementation, or configuration of the product. Indeed, it's not uncommon for acquirers to value ARR at multiples of 6x or more, especially as of today's date, in October 2021, while often valuing service revenue at one times or less. Although it's well established that product revenue tends to be more valuable than service revenue in most cases, it's important to recognize that not every dollar of service revenue should be valued equally across all companies. For this reason, it isn't prudent to judge any given company's revenue profile as inherently good or bad based solely on the percentage of total revenue represented by professional services, even though many unsophisticated acquirers tend to do exactly this. What follows are a few dynamics that would make me more comfortable with a higher ratio of service revenue to total revenue. Now, the more of these that apply to your target company, the better. One, the service work mostly comprises efforts to integrate the product in question with other important systems of record in the customer's technology environment. Two, The service work is largely configuration and includes no customization specific to any given customer. Indeed, customization is a word that you should listen carefully for. If you hear it too frequently, you should run in the opposite direction. Three, the service work never requires any new code to be written. Implementations that are regularly slowed down by feature requests or escalations from the service group to the engineering group should serve as a red flag. Four, because the product is slated to be rolled out across multiple departments within the customer's organization, the implementation requires multiple stakeholders across multiple customer groups. And five, because the product is mission critical to the customer's operations, or because it's likely to be used very frequently, extensive product training is required. In effect, most software that is difficult, time-consuming, or costly to put in tends to be equally as difficult, time-consuming, or costly to take out resulting in higher switching costs and customer stickiness. And of course, this should be validated by analyzing the customer's customer retention numbers, more on that in a little bit. However, this is only true if the implementation work is difficult, time consuming or costly for the right reasons, like those that I just mentioned. If the implementations are complex, time-consuming, or expensive for the wrong reasons, things like lack of product scalability, required customizations, poor product architecture, old technology, and etc., then the prospective acquirer would be wise to proceed with a healthy dose of caution. Topic number three, digging one level deeper, deferred revenue and gap compliance. Software companies that operate under a subscription revenue model tend to have large balances of deferred revenue on their balance sheets, which represents the remaining obligations to those customers who have already paid for their software, but who have not yet received the full benefit of usage across each month for which they have paid. Companies who bill and collect the full value of their contracts upfront, which should always be the preference due to its favorable impact on the working capital cycle, tend to present higher deferred revenue balances than those companies who bill and collect more frequently, say monthly or quarterly. Now, acquirers would be well-served to thoroughly diligence deferred revenue alongside their financial advisors, ultimately with a view towards calculating it on a GAAP-compliant basis, because A, many companies, particularly in the SMB ecosystem, don't account for deferred revenue in a manner consistent with GAAP, this is especially true for companies whose financial statements are unaudited or for those who don't have adequate financial controls in place. B. Differences in how deferred revenue is accounted for can, in some cases, materially over or understate revenue and in turn profitability, which in turn may impact the purchase price. And C. Because deferred revenue tends to be among the largest balances within the current liability section of the balance sheet, Differences in how it is accounted for can materially impact the work and capital adjustment, which is typically done anywhere between 30 to 100 days after the consummation of the acquisition. Topic four, digging one level deeper on customer retention. Though you will analyze countless financial and operational metrics throughout the course of your due diligence process, I would suggest being particularly thoughtful and analytical around customer retention or the rate at which the company is keeping its existing customers. The inverse of retention is called churn, which is the rate at which the company is losing its existing customers. Unsophisticated acquirers may spend most of their time looking only at gross logo churn, but doing so would ignore a lot of other important information. Now, retention can be broken down into two primary categories, each of which presents two different options for a total of four main churn metrics. They are one, customer retention. This essentially answers what percentage of my customers from last year are still my customers this year. And this is sometimes referred to as logo retention. And number two is dollar retention. And this essentially answers what percentage of my recurring revenue dollars from last year are still recurring revenue dollars this year. Now each of these two categories is then broken down into either a net or a gross value, each of which communicates different types of information. So in the case of customer or logo retention, The net value includes the effect of new customer acquisitions, whereas the gross value counts only those customers who have left. For example, a company with 100 customers who loses five customers in 2021, but acquires three new customers that same year, has a net logo churn of 2%, or net logo retention of 98%, and a gross logo churn of 5%, or gross logo retention of 95%, because five customers left. In the case of dollar retention, the net value adds the dollar value of upsells and subtracts the dollar value of downgrades or lost business by customers, whereas the gross value does not. Consider the following example. A company with $100 of recurring revenue and five customers at the beginning of 2021 experienced the following over the next 12 months. First, they lost one customer that had been paying $7 a year of recurring revenue. That's minus $7. Second, they had an existing customer who had been paying $10 a year upgrade their system to a level where they're now paying $15 a year, that's plus $5. Third, they had an existing customer who had been paying $12 a year downgrade their system to a level where they are now only paying $10 a year, that's minus $2. In this case, net dollar churn was negative 4, or 4%, which is the sum of each of the gains and losses that I just mentioned which would imply a net dollar retention rate of 96%. The gross dollar churn was minus $7, or 7%, as it includes only the dollar value of that first customer that they lost. Now, spending a lot of time analyzing retention is incredibly important, simply because it can tell you so much about any given software business. Among other things, it can tell you about the quality of the product, the competitive dynamics in the marketplace, the effectiveness of sales and marketing efforts, customer stickiness and switching costs and pricing power. Now, this might sound obvious to you, but no churn analysis would be complete without a analyzing how churn, ideally each of the four categories that I just mentioned above, has been trending over each of the past five years. And B, an attribution analysis, which means for each lost customer over, say, each of the past five years, a clear understanding of why they left. Attribution analysis is particularly important because not all churn is created equally. For this reason, simply looking at the headline churn numbers is not enough. For example, did your target company see a spike in churn this year because their industry was in the midst of a temporary recession, which would be less worrisome? Or was it because their software utilizes old technology that the major browsers no longer support? And that would be much more worrisome. The next topic, digging one level deeper on the lifetime value of a customer and customer acquisition cost. Alongside a handful of other metrics, almost no financial analysis of a software company would be complete without first analyzing the ratio of the lifetime value of a customer or LTV expressed as a multiple of the average cost to acquire a customer, often called CAC or CAC. In some cases, the simple headline numbers can be misleading if you don't understand the discretion that is often applied when calculating ltv to cac For the sake of brevity, here are just a few examples of why it's important to dig one level deeper than the simple headline numbers. And if you want a summary of how ltv to cac is calculated, please check out the relevant blog post on inthetrenches.net. First, not all software companies necessarily calculate gross margin in the same way. For example, some include sales commissions within COGS, whereas others include them below gross margin as part of their payroll expense. Second, what if the company you're proposing to acquire is too young to even know their average customer lifetime? Third, average customer lifetime can change over time. For example, a company with a 5% churn rate would theoretically have a customer lifetime value of 20 years, which is 1 divided by 5%. However, what if that company had minimal competition over most of their operating history, but now suddenly the market has been flooded with new, well-capitalized entrants? What if that company had relied on an old technology stack and had underinvested in their platform and is now using technology that's being deprecated? Can we still expect customers to stay with this company for an average of 20 years if, say, in two years' time, the current version of their software will creep towards being unusable? Fourth, the amount of sales and marketing spend required to acquire $1 of ARR can and should differ depending on where that ARR is coming from. For example, it tends to be much more expensive to acquire $1 of recurring revenue from new customers and much less expensive to acquire $1 of recurring revenue from existing customers through something like an upsell. Finally, digging one level deeper, the temptation of small, highly profitable software companies. Recently, I've had several prospective acquirers approach me with the opportunity to help finance their acquisitions of very small but highly profitable software companies. Now, these targets tend to be very small, fewer than 5 employees, usually less than $2 million in annual revenue, slow growth, less than 5 to 10% annually, have highly profitable operations, EBITDA margins at 50% or more, and tend to be quite founder-centric. The basic investment thesis that these prospective acquirers tend to present is that the founder has created a lifestyle business and has not actively pursued growth, instead, electing to extract cash from their business every year to finance their desired lifestyle. These founders are often technical in nature, in many cases, having built the initial version of the product themselves 10 or more years ago. While this thesis can indeed make sense in certain instances, I tend to advise these prospective acquirers to proceed with caution for the reasons below. Note that none of these are necessarily universally true or applicable, but instead represent things that you should just look out for if you find yourself interested in acquiring a company that fits this description. First, sometimes acquiring companies of this size is more akin to purchasing somebody else's job than it is to acquiring a true going concern business. Second, assuming that the new owner is interested in pursuing growth, those high EBITDA margins are very unlikely to persist due to the negative correlation between growth and profitability. Third, companies like these often, though not always, underinvest in their people, tools, processes, and systems. If this describes your contemplated target, then the profitability profile that you see on the current financial statements likely doesn't represent the true profitability profile that the business will yield under your ownership. Fourth, despite their high cash flow margins, because of their small size, these companies often present a dollar value of annual cash flow that can be insufficient to finance future growth initiatives. For example, if your company only produces $400,000 of cash flow annually in its current very small state, well then unless you have access to other sources of capital, things like debt, equity, or cash on hand, then you won't have very much money to finance the various growth initiatives that you'll need. Indeed, one talented VP of engineering and one talented VP of sales can consume the entirety of your annual operating cash flow at levels this small. Next, sometimes these businesses are small for a reason. Though it is certainly possible that the owner is satisfied with the current size of the company and is commercially unsophisticated, it is equally possible that the market is small, competitive, saturated, or contracting. Finally, you'll want to have a thorough understanding of where future growth in businesses like these is likely to come from because, again, all sources of growth are not created equally. For example, in some industries, penetration of the type of product being sold is low, so most sales opportunities can be greenfield in nature, meaning that there's no need to replace an incumbent provider of a competing product, and this is obviously preferable. In other instances, however, the market may be more saturated, meaning that any new sale will require a customer to replace the product of an existing provider. And this is much less preferable. So in summary, acquiring any company is difficult for a multitude of reasons, not least of which the sheer volume of information that needs to be processed and understood. In the case of acquiring software companies, there is considerable value in going beyond the simple headline numbers to ensure that you have an appropriately nuanced understanding of all of the relevant dynamics at play. Though I've profiled a handful of financial considerations above, note of course that there are many others for you to consider. And of course, to make matters more complicated, financial due diligence is only a part of the whole due diligence process. Equally, if not more important, are the product-specific considerations that you should understand before you part with any capital. These non-financial considerations will be the focus of my next audio blog entitled Acquiring a Software Company Non-Financial Considerations.